Hello and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club, um, which is what I'm going to call this series of podcasts that will explore um, all of the, the fictional uh, works by Robert A. Heinlein. Um, it's going to take a little bit over 100 episodes to do that, I think, probably more than that, depending on the novels, but I've put together a list of uh, all the novels and short stories. And I know there's some nonfiction work that we can probably look at too when we come to that. Um, and anyways, we're just going to go through it and it's going to take probably, you know, a year or two to do this, but it's something I've been thinking about doing for a while. And it's something I'm um, pretty excited to, to jump into. It's always exciting to, to jump in, to look at a, a new writer and really sink your teeth into them. Um, now, unlike the last two, author series I did, Philip K. Dick and H.P. Lovecraft, I have not read even half of Heinlein's works. So it's a lot of this is going to be much more fresh for me. So I'm not coming in with any kind of interpretive lens the way I did with those other two series. It's going to be more of an exploration. And my thoughts about Heinlein are probably going to evolve over time. And uh, that's exciting too. So um, how are we going to start today? Well, um, we're going to start with uh, For Us the Living, or at least the first part of For Us the Living. So this uh, novel was written in 1939 to 1938 um, or so, and it was shelved or, or discarded by Heinlein, who went on to, to, to work on short stories after this. Um, and it got kind of rediscovered and was then published and it's it's since been in, you know added into the the Heinlein um repertoire of novels it, it's a bit of a weird novel because it's uh like a lot of talking a lot of meetings a lot of just discussing uh this kind of uh this world in the future it's you know it's why it's better than the current world it's I guess this is we could criticize this when we compare it to other Heinlein novels where there is sort of a plot. Um, the plot, there isn't really a plot here. Uh, there's just um, a description of the world. But in its defense, that's true of many of these utopian novels and, and that whole genre. If we look at you know, the typical way they work, you know, look at looking backward or I guess Connecticut Yankee actually has a plot and that's going back in time. But but certainly looking backward is, is the novel I kept thinking of here where you just have some plot device to get someone to the future. It doesn't matter how he sleeps or in this case, there's a car accident and the guy just wakes up in a new body. Somehow there's some kind of transmigration of the soul that takes place. It's never explained, um, but that's not the point. The point is we just need someone from our time to come into the future to be an interlocutor to ask questions and then get information about the time they're living in now, right? Because this is information that wouldn't make too much sense for two people from the from the future to talk about with each other because they take it all for granted. Um, so you need someone from the past to be the interlocutor and it doesn't matter how they get there. 
So that's what Heinlein does. So yeah, this isn't really a novel. It's an extended lecture on social credit, and it's an argument for that. Um, now the social or the historical context for this work is very important too because it's it's written and conceived during the New Deal and during um, Roosevelt's second term. Before the third term, before World War II really breaks out, where America is still thinking about the Great Depression. So Heinlein is obviously here upset with the, the New Deal and aspects of it. And he's not a fan of socialism. Um, he wants sort of this kind of an, a more American form of it is kind of a socialism almost but it's a but it's not using government-owned industries it's it's more of a it's kind of a it's trying to get the outcome of of socialism through like american values i think that's pretty what he's doing and he thinks the social credit structure which has been out there for a while it's not invented by heinlein here heinlein is sort of unrevealing it to the to the public through this novel, through these characters. I guess if it has a similarity to like a theory today, it's it's relatively close to to um, modern monetary theory, uh, at least in term in the fiscal aspects of of, of what he's describing here. Um, in the sense, I mean, I guess my understanding of modern monetary theory is that money is just created by government and the only limit on how much money can be sent out is the productive capacity of the country. Uh, if you surpass that with the money supply, you're going to get inflation and then you counteract that with taxation. Um, but otherwise, taxation is not really necessary except to counteract inflation or to promote socially more egalitarian uh, settings, either either as a virtuous goal, I suppose. But um, what you don't want is deflation. You don't want a lack of money uh, limiting the capacity of production, which is what happened in the Great Depression, right? We don't need to rehash this. I did this all with the John Kenneth Galbraith series. If you go back to my main podcast series, I did a lot of work on the Great Depression at various times. And I've, you know, often would talk about the fact, you know, this was a demand crisis. It was a crisis that demand did not meet the capacity of the country to produce. So Heinlein's answer and the social credit answer here is just print money, distribute money to the people until those things are realigned, create consumption. Um, and that's pretty much what it comes down to. Uh, how we implement that, whether it's uh, uh, so through kind of needs-based welfare, that's not ideal. What we have here is more like a universal basic income approach where everyone gets a, a, a heritage it's called which is kind of just like you know this idea goes all the way back to tom Paine, of course where everyone at maturity would just get a certain amount of money so they could start a farm or be educated or learn a craft or start a business here it's presented as a heritage which is just a basic income everyone gets which lets them survive and of course most people go and work above and beyond that um, of course by keeping private owned industry by keeping um, like capitalism in that sense, you have people hiring and people getting jobs and, but they're freer to pursue their interests and the, you're not going to have the economic ups and downs because you constantly have the government figuring out what's the difference between the money supply and our productive capacity and then prints money or distributes money to the people to make up for that.
that's basically what we have here in um, in this future world that that Heinlein's describing for us, set in the the later twenty first century. Now, anyone who's read this book knows that there's other aspects of this utopia that are of interest to to readers today, and I, I think that the two major ones, I guess, behind the overall economic policy, maybe there's three. Um, one would be marriage, uh, and Heinlein, of course, is very aggressive in his works about describing and articulating alternative forms of marriage and coupling and relationships, and he's obviously doesn't hold monogamy as, as, a, as a universal ideal. I've read many tweets criticizing people like Heinlein for basically imposing some kind of pervert morality on the future, basically their fantasy, the ideas. Their fantasy is non-monogamy, so of course the future, which is better, is going to be non-monogamous. And somehow that this is not a good thing. I mean, I, my, my, that's probably true. I mean, I do think Heinlein is projecting into the future his ideal society, but how is that not better than monogamy? How is, non, how is libertarian sexuality worse than a non-libertarian sexuality unless you don't think liberty is that valuable um or do you think our sexuality needs to be controlled um but whatever um of course whenever you do this you have to deal with the problem of jealousy right and this is being of course anarchists have been thinking about too i think in that anarchist journal lucifer the light bearer there's a lot of struggling with the question of sexuality and marriage and jealousy and what open relationships and free love would actually look like that's something they're they're interested in and heinlein's actually building on that tradition as well in this book then you have uh, essentially a kind of criticism of of the justice system um in which here we have a world in which people who don't want to live in the society are free to leave it. It's, it's not required that you stay. There's kind of open borders, essentially, at least, at least going out. Um, like many utopias, we're given a world that's essentially separate from the rest of the world. Although, to his credit, he gives the history of that. But to do this, he basically has to destroy Europe. Um, and then that allows us to kind of play with America rather relatively independent from the rest of the world. Um, but he does give us the historical narrative about how you get sort of a isolationist America that is the product of certain historical trends that are that are described in the earlier parts of the novel um, oh talking about punishment okay so our character at some point hits uh, another suitor for the woman he's fallen in love with um, and this is an antisocial activity, and he's in, he's put in jail for, or he's arrested for this, and not punished so much as he's like rehabilitated. He's sent basically to an uh, institution where he's got to, um, be, he's basically forced to break down the principles of, of how he thinks. And I think there's a wonderful conversation had in this part of the book where, where this idea where, where this idea of jealousy being human nature is taken on in a really interesting way and and i actually haven't heard this argument before but i'm going to use it now and i'm going to uh, steal it from from heinlein and that is it's also human nature to like consume till we're full every time to eat food because we have a fear of hunger 
right? So the idea of jealousy, we fear we're going to lose our loved one, right? It comes out of insecurity. Well, we have that same insecurity about food, or at least we did, but no one is, well, I guess unless you're in a situation where you're starving, most people in the world today aren't in a situation where they're worried where their next meal's coming from. And yeah, there's a billion people on the planet that are food insecure, but that's still one out of eight. Most of us are food secure. So we don't kill each other over food. We're not jealous about other people. We don't see someone eating a, a hamburger and we get jealous, right? We just think, oh, I'd like a hamburger too. Where can I get one? There's, there's a million places where you can get one. So we've overcome that not because we're not human anymore. We've overcome that because of our material conditions have made it that we don't need to have that feeling anymore. And Heinlein's saying like the material conditions that demanded monogamy and marriage and the traditional gender roles has evaporated. So why can't we just get rid of jealousy? We shouldn't be jealous of someone else sleeping with uh, the woman we sleep with any more than we should be jealous of someone eating a hamburger when we don't have one in our hand at that moment. We're kind of post-scarcity with, with love. We always were, honestly. I mean, if you look at the Paleolithic, you know, read Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan. You know, the idea is like our origins was post-scarcity in terms of sexuality and companionship and, and family and community. It's only with civilization that we've, we, create, we created a false scarcity in those things, which, of course, that isn't the case with food. So we actually have less of a good reason to hold on to, to relationship jealousy. So that, that actually leads us to the third thing. So we have the economics. We have isolation sort of being contrived in the book and then we have a we have new vision new vision of of sociability or uh, of rehabilitation of, of crime uh we have then a new vision too of family and relationships and they're all intertwined in a way they certainly they're, they're not really exchangeable they're all part of the same system but what we're actually introduced first is the free love the free sexuality where um you know one of the first scenes we get when this guy wakes up in the future he has a car accident this all happens right in chapter one and he essentially dies but he wakes up and he's in the future no one really investigates why it seems there has been some kind of transmigration of a soul where someone who chose to basically be kill himself abandoned his body opening up a body f to be transmigrated into and then our character nelson perry nelson is able to take that over so it doesn't matter it's just so we can have a character in the future from our time to think about things and to and to be exposed to this world so that is uh i guess uh a good summary of the novel actually i don't know if i have to go into too much detail about uh the, the story here um You know, I am going to try to keep the episodes in this particular series shorter than I normally do for the American Writer series, because um, we're going to be doing a lot of short stories, and and yeah, I just I'm not going to go on hopefully for 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 an hour um, on a, on one episode like I sometimes do with the American Writers podcast. But uh, that said, I do think there's something said to kind of meditate and go through this kind of slowly. It's just there's not that much more to maybe say about this book. I will, um, in the next episode, I think, go in a little bit deeper 
into the history um, presented in this book and into some more of the of the theoretical foundation on the economic system and careers and work and some of the I guess some of the ramifications um, of this world as as a setup here I think in broad outlines I more or less presented what you're going to get in terms of the theory here um, it's a it's as in common in many utopias a kind of a splendid isolationism um, which just makes everything easier um, you know so it's like one of the reasons the Soviet Union failed is because it was not you didn't have global socialism right it was existing within a capitalist world this is you know why China's socialism is is corrupted it's because it's in a capitalist world right it's not a true alternative because the world system still is what it is so if you want to have a real utopia you kind of have to distance it because as soon as you throw in some kind of foreign capital or you know this world if it exists today would be overthrown by the CAA right if, if you had someone actually creating a whole new theory of money and actually using it to improve people's lives and to you know support industry at the domestic level that that would be a target of the CIA right they'd, they'd be next on the list after Libya uh, or Russia or China or somewhere these other Venezuela whatever country you want that's the target of, of American hegemony there'd be some other power so Heinlein here has to kind of destroy uh, Europe and actually create a historical events that dislodge Latin America from from really America so America's just sort of doing its own thing and it works great because there isn't that burden of empire. And I, I think that's really a prescient aspect of for us to living is he understands American empires, uh, how it corrupts our, our better natures. Um, I'm just going to close here for this episode. I am going to come back in the next episode to say more about for us to living. But there's... Is, is what I appreciate about this is it very much isn't an American utopia. It's not, uh, it's trying to speak, Heinlein here is trying to speak in in American English to to the readers, not in Russian, not in some other language, not in Chinese. It's not, you know, it's not borrowing utopian traditions from other countries. It's saying, what would an American utopia look like? It would rest on freedom to choose a profession. It would rest on the freedom to be a consumer. It would require um, freedom of motion, right? And he goes farther than most Americans at the time would in actually then implying sexual freedom and, and the end of traditional marriage. That's really to his credit, I think. But it's, it's still very much a utopia based on liberty. And it, it's kind of a, and, and many people now might say, oh, give everyone an income that's going to, that's socialism. Well, no, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be. Socialism has to do with, communism has to do with the means of production. Who owns it? Who owns the factories, the farms, the, the people or private businesses, right? All social credit is, is the way that, the way the wheels of industry are lubricated with money, right? But it just ensures that a money supply is there to meet demand or to meet supply. If we think we need more, more uh, cars, right? The neoliberal solution, I guess, is tax cuts to car manufacturers, right? And that's not Highland's approach here. Highland's approach would be give people money to buy cars and 
producers will produce the cars because there's a demand for it. And I think that makes total sense. I totally agree with that. Um, and it's, it's the same in pretty much every category here. What is needed by society? Healthcare, make healthcare free, right? Education is needed by society. Uh, people can't afford it. Well, make that free in some way. And the heritage does a lot of heavy lifting here in, in fulfilling that, but there are other commodities here that are straight up free, like, like healthcare. And our Perry's always very confused about this, like, how can this be? And then he has to be convinced why it is. And he'll say, well, in my day, we did it this way. And then it's revealed how stupid he is. It's, it's that, that, or how stupid that way was. This is the cycle we get in through again and again in this book. Um, but the arguments are really well done. I, I think this isn't a novel, obviously. It's, it's just a series of, of, of conversations in which the system is, is revealed in various aspects. But, but it's done in a very convincing way. I think this is a great introduction to social credit. And if you want to argue for like a universal basic income and all the consequences that might come from that, positive and negative, mostly positive in this case because it is a polemic for that, um, I, I kind of recommend this book. Um, some of the economic arguments do get a little uh, wonky, um, especially uh, one particular conversation doing where, yeah, I guess this will be my one criticism of the book before I close the episode for today. And that is, I, one thing I always hate about economics, talking about economics with people, is they tend to resort to um, these kind of examples that aren't drawn from reality. It's like, oh, imagine a man on an island who makes a fishing pole and sells it to the other guy on the island because he wants to fish. Some stupid example like that that doesn't come in reality, right? It doesn't exist in reality. But... But Heinlein does that a little bit with uh, with chess pieces and moving money around. He's trying to explain how this all fits together in a complex economy with different interests and how everyone's can be happy through the social credit system and and how it's more rational. All right, fine, but it is still resorting to kind of a contrived textbook example, the kind of nonsense you see in economics books that are divorced from reality, right? Um. Now, seeing it in practice, seeing it lived out in some of his later works is something I'm hoping to see. Because I, I already saw some things here that I have read in other Heinlein works, like the mo like the conveyor belt roads uh, that are in the roles, roads must roll. The non-monogamy stuff is in Stranger in a Strange Land and, and, and Moon is the Harsh Mistress. Um, uh, the, the, the kind of focus on mathematics as, as a solution to social problems is something that runs through a lot of his work. So um, I'm excited to, to read his other works to see signs of this. I mean, on the surface, in day-to-day -day life, it's going to look like just like a capitalist economy. People go to work. They work for others. There's businesses that are independently owned. They don't, they're not part of the government generally. It's just the whole funding mechanism is, is done through the heritage and the social credit system. Um, the, the, so yeah, money. The money theory is doing a lot of the heavy lifting here, but I think these are convincing arguments for this. Um, I, you know, I've already been kind of convinced of my modern monetary theory, but I, I'm still deep down somewhat concerned about issues like labor relations and how workers are treated and and who owns industry. And I do think there's a in 
MMT and in the social credit system presented here, there's not much interrogation of what that would be like. Like workers could still be exploited and still are clearly exploited in the system. Um, and then the only difference is now they can move. They, they don't have to accept it, but it doesn't mean that exploitation is not going to happen. But anyways, we're going to talk more about this book in the, in the next episode. So anyways, thanks for listening. Um, let me know if you have any advice going forward. I have not read much Heinlein, probably 10 books and maybe five or six short stories. That's all. So most of Heinlein's work, it's, it's going to be brand new for me. So if you are more familiar with Heinlein, please give me your advice or thoughts. Um, guide me. Give me your advice. Um, but I am going to go systematically through the works. Um, so from for now, for quite a while, we're going to be looking at short stories until we get to Rocket Ship Galileo. But that's going to be a while. I think that's we got all, pretty much most of the 40s before he starts um, writing novels. So we got a whole bunch of short stories to look at. The first will be uh, uh, Lifeline. And then we'll do Misfit and we'll go on from there. So the next episode, we'll look at Lifeline, um, which I've never read. So just like this book, I've never read that before. So. So far, we're all starting with new stuff. Very, very exciting. I'm very happy. Um, so give me your thoughts, and I will see you next time. Uh, thanks for listening.